Chapter 7 Arizona's Yesterday by John Cady and Basso Woon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Passante. Ventures and Adventures. Hush, what brooding stillness is hanging over all? What's this talk in whispers and that placard on the wall? Ah, I see it now. They're going to hang a man. Judge Lynch is on the ramparts, and the laws and also ran. Wound. Reader, have you ever seen the look in a man's eyes after he has been condemned by that court of last appeal, his fellow men? I have, many times. It is a look without a shadow of hope left, a look of dread at the ferocity of the mob, a look of fear at what is to come afterwards and seldom a hint of defiance lurks in such a man's expression. I have seen and figured in many lynchings. In the old days they were the inseparables, the frontier and Judge Lynch. If a white man killed a Mexican or Indian, nothing was done, except perhaps to hold a farce of a trial, with the killer in the end turned loose. And if a white man killed another white man, there was seldom much outcry, unless the case was cold-blooded murder or the killer was already unpopular. But let a Mexican or an Indian lift one finger against a white man, and the whole strength of the whites was against him in a moment. He was hounded to his hole, dragged forth, tried by a committee of citizens over whom Judge Lynch sat with awful solemnity, and was forthwith hung. More or less of this was in some degree necessary. The killing of an Apache was accounted a good day's work, since it probably meant that the murder of several white men had gone to his doom. To kill a Mexican only meant that another bad hombre had gone to his just deserts. And most of the Mexicans in Arizona in the early days were bad hombres. There is no doubt about that. It was they who gave the Mexicans such a bad name on the frontier, and it was they who first earned the title Greaser. They were a murderous, treacherous lot of rascals. In the Wickenburg Stage Massacre, for instance, it was known that several Mexicans were involved, woodchoppers. One of these Mexicans was hunted for weeks and was caught soon after I arrived in Phoenix. I was running my dance hall when a committee of citizens met in a mass meeting and decided that the law was too slow in its working and gave the Mexican too great an opportunity to escape. The meeting then resolved itself into a hanging committee broke open the jail, seized the prisoner from the arms of the sheriff, and hung him to the rafters just inside the jail door. That done, they returned to their homes and occupations, satisfied that at least one greaser had not evaded the full penalty of his crimes. Soon after a Mexican arrived in town with a string of cows to sell, somebody recognized the cows as ones that belonged to a rancher named Patterson. The Mexican was arrested by citizens and a horseman sent out to investigate. Patterson was found killed. At once, and with little ceremony, the Mexican with the cattle was strung up to the cross of a gatepost, his body being left to sway in the wind until somebody came along with sufficient decency to cut it down. Talking about lynchings reminds me of an incident that almost slipped my mind. Before I went to Wickenburg from Tucson, I became partners with a man named Robert Swope in a bar and gambling layout in a little place called Adamsville, a few miles below where Florence now is, on the Gila River. Swope was tending bar one night when an American shot him dead and got away. The murderer was soon afterwards captured in Tucson and lynched in company with two Mexicans who were concerned in the murder of a pawnbroker there. 
In Phoenix, I married my first wife, whose given name was Ruficia. Soon afterwards, I moved to Tucson, where after being awarded one child, I had domestic trouble, which ended in courts. My wife finally returned to Phoenix, being free again, married a man named Murphy. After this experience, I determined to take no further chances with matrimony. However, I needed a helpmate, so I solved the difficulty by marrying Paola Ortega by contract for five years. Contract marriages were universally recognized and indulged in in the West of the early days. My relations with Paola were eminently satisfactory until the expiration of the contract, when she went her way and I mine. Before I leave the subject of Phoenix, it will be well to mention that when I left, I sold all my property there, consisting of some 22 lots, all in the heart of the city, for practically a song. Six of these lots were situated where now is a big planting mill. Several lots I sold to a German for a span of mules. The German is alive today and lives in Phoenix, a wealthy man, simply because he had the foresight and acumen to do what I did not do, hang on to his real estate. If I had kept those 22 lots until now, without doing more than simply pay my taxes on them, my fortune today would be comfortably up in the six figures. However, I sold the lots, and there's no use crying over spilt milk. Men are doing today all over the world just what I did then. I had not been in Tucson long before I built there the largest saloon and dance hall in the territory. Excepting for one flyer in Florence, which I shall speak of later on, this was to be my last venture into the liquor business. My hall was modeled after those on the Barbary Coast. It cost four bits and drinks to dance, and the dances lasted only a few minutes. At one time I had 13 Mexican girls dancing in the hall, and this number was increased on special days until the floor was crowded. I always did good business. So good, in fact, that jealousy aroused and the minds of my rivals finally forced me out. Since then, as I have said, with the single Florence exception, I have not been in the dance hall business, excepting that I now have at some expense put a ballroom into my hotel at Patagonia, in which are held at times social dances, which most of the young folk of the county attend, the liquor element being entirely absent, of course. Besides paying a heavy license for the privilege of selling liquor in my Tucson dance hall, I was compelled every morning, in addition to pay over, $5 as a license for the dance hall and a fifty collector's fee, which if not paid out every morning as regularly as clockwork, would have threatened my business. I did not complain of this tax, it was a fair one considering the volume of trade I did, but my patronage grew and grew until there came a day when Katie's place, as it was known, was making more money for its owner than any similar establishment in Arizona. The saloon keepers in Tucson became inordinately jealous and determined to put end to my luck, as they called it. Accordingly, nine months after I had opened my place, these gentlemen used their influence quietly with the legislature and jobbed me. The license was raised for dance halls at one bound to $25 per night. This was a heavier tax than even my business would stand, so I set out about once looking for somebody on whom to unload the property. I claim originality, if not a particular observance of ethics, in doing this. One day a man came along when he saw the crowd in the hall suggested I sell him a share in the enterprise. No, I replied, I'm not selling you a share, but to tell you the truth, I'm getting tired of this business and want to get out of it for good. I'll sell you the whole shooting match if you want to buy. Suppose you stay tonight with my barkeep and see what kind of business I do. He agreed, and I put $200 in my pocket and started around town. I spent that $200 to such good purpose that that night the hall was crowded to the doors. The prospective purchaser 
looked down with blinking eyes at the thought of the profits that must accrue to the owner. Would he buy the place? Would he? Well, say he was so anxious to buy it that he wanted to pass over the cash when he saw me counting up my takings in the small hours of the morning. Takings were, I remember, $417, but I told him not to be in a hurry to go home and sleep over the proposition and come back the next day. After he had gone, the collector came around, took his twenty-six fifty, and departed. On his heels came my man. Do you still want to buy? I asked him. You bet your sweet life I want to buy, he replied. You're sure you've investigated the proposition fully? I asked him. Customer thought of that $417 taken in over the bar the night before, and said he had. Hand over the money, then, I said promptly. The place is yours. The next morning, he came to me with a lugubrious countenance. Well, I greeted him. How much did you make last night? Took in $96, he answered sadly. Katie, why didn't you tell me about that $25 tax? Tell you about it, I repeated, as if astonished. Why, didn't I ask you if you had investigated the thing fully? Did I ask you to go into the deal blindfold? It wasn't my business to tell you about any tax. And with that he had to be content. I was now out of the dance hall business for good, and I looked about for some other and more prosaic occupation to indulge in. Thanks to the deal I had put through with the confiding stranger with the ready cash, I was pretty well healed so far as money went, and all my debts were paid. Finally, I decided I would go into business again and bought a grocery store on Basilla Street. The handling out of canned tomatoes and salt soda crackers, however, speedily got on my nerves. I was still a comparatively young man, and my restless spirit longed for expression in some new environment. About this time, Paola, my contract wife, who was everything that a wife should be in my opinion, became a little homesick and spoke often of the home she had left its actual a small Gulf Coast port in Lower California. Accordingly, one morning, I took it into my head to take her home on a visit to see her people, and, the thought being always father to the action with me, I traded my grocery store for a buckboard and team and some money and set forth in this conveyance for Yuma. This was a trip not considered so very dangerous except for the lack of water, for the Indians along the route were mostly peaceable and partly civilized. Only for a short distance out of Tucson did the Apache hold suzerainty, and this is only when sufficient Papagos, whose territory it really was, could not be mustered together in force to drive them off. The Papago Indians hated the Apaches quite as much as the white man did, for the Papago lacked the stamina and fighting qualities of the Apache, and in other characteristics was an entirely different type of Indian. I have reason to believe that the Apaches were not originally natives of Arizona, but were an offshoot of one of the more ferocious tribes further north. This, I think, because, for one thing, the facial characteristics of the other Arizona Indians, Pimas, Papagos, Yumas, Maricopas, and others, are very similar to each other, but totally different from those of the various Apache tribes, as was the language they spoke. The Papagos, Pimas, Yumas, Maricopas, and other peaceable Indian peoples were of a settled nature and had lived in their respective territories for ages before the white man came to the west, Apache, on the other hand, was a nomad with no definite country to call his own and recognizing no boundary lines of other tribes. It was owing to Apache depredations on the Papagos and Pimas that the latter were so willingly enlisted on the side of the white man in the latter's fight for civilization. Reaching Yuma without any event to record that I remember, we took one of the Colorado River boats to the mouth of the Colorado, 
where transfers were made to the deep-sea ships plying between the Colorado Gulf and San Francisco. One of these steamers, which were creditable to the times, we took to La Paz. At La Paz, Paola was fortunate enough to meet her padrina, or godfather, who furnished us with mules and horses, with which we reached Soxal, Paola's home. There we stayed with her family for some time. While staying at Soxal, I went to a fiesta in the Arroyo San Luis, and there began playing Cuncan with an old rancher who was accounted one of the most wealthy inhabitants of the country. I won from him two thousand oranges, five gallons of wine, seventeen buckskins, and two hundred heifers. The heifers I presented to Paola, and the buckskins I gave to her brothers to make leggings out of. The wine and oranges I took to La Paz and sold, netting a neat little sum thereby. Sixty miles from La Paz was El Triunfo, one of the best-producing silver mines in Lower California, managed by a man named Blake. Obeying an impulse, I one day went out to the mine and secured a job working at it for some time, and among other things, starting a small store, which was patronized by the company's workmen. Growing tired of this occupation, I returned to Soxall, fetched Paola, and with her returned to Yuma, or Arizona City, where I started a small chicken ranch a few miles up the river. Cowdies and wolves killed my poultry, however, and sores occasioned by ranch work broke out on my hands. So I sold the chicken ranch and moved to Arizona City, opening a restaurant on the main street. In this cafe, I made a specialty of pickled feet. Not pig's feet, but bull's feet, for which delicacy I claim original creation. It was some dish, too. They sold like hotcakes. While I was in Lower California, I witnessed a sight that is well worth speaking of. It was a Mexican funeral, and the queerest one I ever saw or expect to see, though I have read of Chinese funerals that perhaps approach it in peculiarity. It was while on my way back to Soxal from La Paz that I met the cortege. The corpse was that of a wealthy rancher's wife, and the coffin was strung on two long poles borne by four men. Accompanying the coffin alongside of those carrying it were about two hundred horsemen. The bearers kept up a jog trot, never once faltering on the way each horseman taking his turn on the poles. When it became a man's turn to act as bearer, nobody told him, but he slipped off his horse, let it run wherever it pleased, ran to the coffin, ducked under the pole, and started with the others on the jog trot, while the man whose place he had taken caught his horse. Never once in a carry of 150 miles did that coffin stop, and never once did that jog trot falter. The cortege followers ate at the various ranches they passed, nobody thinking or refusing them food. The 150-mile journey to San Luis was necessary in order to reach a priest who would bury the dead woman. All the dead were treated in the same manner. While I was in Yuma, the railroad reached Dos Palmas, Southern California, and one day I went there with a wagon and bought a load of apples, which, with one man to accompany me, I hauled all the way to Tucson. That wagon load of apples was the first fruit to arrive in the territory, and it was hailed with acclaim. I sold the lot for $1,000, making the profit well over 50%. Then with the wagon, I returned to Yuma. On the way, as I was nearing Yuma, I stopped at Canyon Station, which a man named Ed Lumley kept. Just as we drove up, an old priest came out of Lumley's house crying something aloud. We hastened up, and he motioned inside. Within, we saw poor Lumley dead, with both his hands slashed off and his body bearing other marks of mutilation. It turned out that two Mexicans to whom Lumley had given shelter had killed him because he refused to tell him where he kept his money. Mexicans were afterwards caught in California, taken to Maricopa County, and there, after trial by the usual method, received a just penalty for their crime. 
From Yuma, I moved to Florence, Arizona, where I built a dance hall and saloon, which I sold almost immediately to an Italian named Gendani. Then I moved back to Tucson, my old stamping ground. End of chapter 7